You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Sexism, atomic war, racism, genocide, dead kids, railing against political correctness, and having sex with Ray Bradbury. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on... What What Mad Universe! How do you like Mars, Pop? Fine. Always something new. I made up my mind when I came here last year I wouldn't expect nothing, nor ask nothing, nor be surprised at nothing. We've got to forget Earth and how things were. We've got to look at what we're in here and how different it is. I got a hell of a lot of fun out of just the weather here. It's Martian weather. Hot as hell daytimes, cold as hell nights. I got a big kick out of the different flowers and different rain. I came to Mars to retire, and I want to retire in a place where everything is different. An old man needs to have things different. Young people don't want to talk to him, other old people bore the hell out of him, and so I thought the best thing for me is a place so different that all you gotta do is open your eyes and you're entertained. I got this gas station, if business picks up too much, I'll move on back to some other old highway that's not so busy, where I can earn just enough to live on, and still have time to feel the different things here. I'm not surprised at anything anymore, said the old man. I'm just looking. I'm just experiencing. If you can't take Mars for what she is, you might as well go back to Earth. Everything's crazy up here. The soil, the air, the canals, the natives. I never saw any yet, but I hear they're around. Clocks. Even my clock acts funny. Even time is crazy up here. Sometimes I feel I'm here all by myself, no one else on the whole damn planet. I'd take bets on it. Sometimes I feel about eight years old, my body squeezed up and everything else tall. Jesus, it's just the place for an old man. Keeps me alert, keeps me happy. You know what Mars is? It's like a thing I got for Christmas 70 years ago. Don't know if you ever had one. They called them kaleidoscopes. Bits of crystal and cloth and beads and pretty junk. You held it up to the sunlight and looked on through at it and it took your breath away. All the patterns. Well, that's Mars. Enjoy it. Don't ask it to be nothing else but what it is. Jesus, you know that highway right there built by the Martians is over 16 centuries old and still in good condition. That's $1.50. Thanks and good night. I don't try to describe the future, said Ray Bradbury. I try to prevent it. In the late 40s and early 50s, he wrote a series of short stories about the strange and fantastic Martian civilization and the human settlers that supplanted them. The stories were linked together by themes and imagery and ideas, but it wasn't until publishers at Doubleday pointed it out that Bradbury realized that all the stories linked together to make a novel. This is the story of the Martian Chronicles. Hello and welcome to What Mad Universe. As always, I am Adam Prosser, and with me is Philip Rice. Hello. 
And uh, as you may have guessed, we're talking about the Martian Chronicles. Uh, this is our first, another, another sort of uh, seminal uh, contributor to uh, uh, science fiction, Ray Bradbury. Uh, we've been going through some of the big ones this season, and um, yeah, uh, Bradbury's uh, Bradbury's a big one. Uh, and and you'd never read anything by Ray Bradbury at this point. No, right? uh, no? I. My history with him is as follows. Uh, first heard about him when um, Fahrenheit 9-11 came out, uh, the uh, Michael Moore movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just that, that was a reference to a book called Fahrenheit 451. Uh, later on, uh, TVO, uh, that's TV Ontario, which is like a PBS, local PBS thing. Um, they used to do Saturday night at the movies. They might still do it. I don't know. Um and which would include afterwards uh, interviews, uh, pretty good interviews with uh, relevant people. Um, and they did for the Fahrenheit 451 movie, which included an interview with Bradbury himself, who came across as kind of a jerk. <laughs> um, he um, he clear. I mean, he clearly didn't like the movie, which is his choice. But I don't know. Some of his reasons seemed a little suspect. Like he didn't like that the uh, the female lead had too much agency. Yeah, in well, the movie. Well, we can talk about Ray Bradbury yeah. uh, himself. Yeah, um. and uh, then <laughs> later, uh, later, uh, I uh, saw. I think it was uh, about ten years ago, two thousand ten. Uh, Rachel Bloom's uh, of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She got her first big thing with the music video. Um, I can't see the title here, but "F Me, Ray Bradbury," which is her <laughs> dancing around in a low-cut schoolgirl outfit. Uh, talking about how much he wants to have sex with Ray Bradbury with <laughs> suggestive references to his books. And he apparently liked that uh, and actually met up with her at some point. They had a, they had a pleasant chat. So, yeah. well, um, yeah, those are, those are the poles of Ray Bradbury's career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the uh, Fahrenheit that, That's just my movie. experience with him. Yes. I had heard of the Martian Chronicles when I was uh, heavily researching Martian stuff, but it mm-hmm. wasn't, it it's not public domain, so I didn't read it as part of that because that's all I was reading. Right. Um. Um. So I I I knew that it existed, and I knew it was a collection of short stories, uh, sort of an anthology thing. I it wasn't what I was expecting though, and we'll get into that. Yeah. Well, it's it's important to no, we've talked a few times on this show about um the new wave of science fiction, which hit in the generally in the mid '60s, but it was brewing as early as the fifties. Um, and in many ways, Bradbury was kind of, uh, he was a major inspiration for it. We also talked about, um, uh, Alfred Bester. Um, we have mentioned, uh, JG Ballard in the post-World War II era, there was sort of a movement to get away from the nuts and bolts, uh, science fiction, where it was all just very, very either pulpy or supposedly, you know, the, the high minded stuff was, based on pure scientific realism. And there was an attempt to sort of move into a bit more of a, a literary uh, movement. And Bradbury was a big uh, influence on that. Uh, he was actually taken seriously as an author in a way that a lot of other uh, contemporary science fiction writers were not. Um, a lot of people sort of credit him with, you know, science fiction starting to be taken a bit more seriously by the mainstream after the, you know, the Clark era of, uh, you know, rocket ships and, and, and astronauts and, Marsmen and everything, which ironically this is about Marsmen. But uh, Bradbury doesn't try to write this in any way as as a plausible or realistic science fiction story. I mean, it's effectively uh, you know fantasy, you know, dreamlike, surreal, 
fantasy stories. Uh, and Bradbury's career, as he went on, got more and more down that direction. He 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 was very much um, interested in the the language and the poetry of what he was writing about, and he'd use imagery from you know pop culture and science fiction and so forth. But he was he wasn't really interested in capturing it as you know a plausible. Uh, a plausible uh, science fiction story. He wasn't. He wasn't about the ideas the way you know Asimov was, for instance. He was about you know the the, the tone and texture. Uh, I've never heard if he was actually a fan of Lord Dunsany, but I feel like he's there's. You can trace a line between Dunsany and Ray Bradbury's stories. Yeah, I can see that because he like um, yeah like Dunsany likes the little sort of mood pieces that set an atmosphere that are much more about that than the story. And Bradbury does the same yeah. thing, especially in this. And this this has a rough continuity and some recurring characters, but a lot of the sort of takes on, on Martian culture are sort of contradictory. Right. And you could explain that as, like, different parts of Mars, but um, as we'll talk about, uh, this wasn't intended originally as a novel. Uh, it was um, um, a bunch of short stories he just wrote independently, and then... His publisher mentioned, you know, these are all sort of linked. Right. And um, then he went in and fixed up some things and added, right. added um, uh, connections between them, I guess. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he rewrote a few of the stories and he wrote a few little um, uh, bits uh, that, that, you know, that sort of interstitial bits that uh, connect things. Um, he apparently was a big fan of something called Weinberg, Ohio, which I'm, I'm not familiar with, but apparently it's, it's a similar uh, thing where it's a series of short stories that portrays a, a town uh, through different lenses and through these, these little short stories. Um, and, um, and he's doing that except with this Mars settling Mars and this Martian civilization. Um, it's it's uh and the thing is he actually wrote um quite a few stories uh that didn't make it into the Martian Chronicles. Um, there's there's almost as many s- linked stories that aren't officially part of the Martian Chronicles. And in fact, there were different editions have included or removed some of the stories, uh, including "Way Up the Middle of the Air" was not always included, I believe. Uh, and there was um, a- yeah, mine didn't have one. Um, the the version I got didn't have. Uh, I can't remember the title, but Wikipedia described it as like a uh, a priest going in trying to convert natives. Yes, there was a story that that is actually that was left out of the first edition. I think it's only a few later editions that include that one. Um, but there's also uh, there's quite a few different stories. Um, there's there's a story literally called uh, "Dark They Were and Golden Eyed." Uh, which I really like, uh, that um, that really uh, fleshes out the Martians a little bit. And in some ways, it's actually an even better um, realization of the themes of the story. Uh, I'll, I'll get into that in a moment. Uh, and there's a bunch of others. Uh, let's see. There was um, that just the ones that I've read. Uh, there's one called The Other Foot, which is actual, actually a sequel to Way Up the Middle of the Air. Uh, and uh, The Blue Bottle... Uh, the the visitor there's a, uh, there's quite a few stories and and this is what Bradbury did quite often he would write a story around a series of images a series of ideas um, kind of a story prompt for the for a world uh, not even a world just just an event for he wrote uh, several stories uh, about the idea of uh, people who were in um, in Mexico I I I 
believe uh, inspired by a trip he took to Mexico. Uh, just the idea that there was an atomic war that hit while he was in, while these people were in Mexico, Americans were in Mexico, and and how it, strange it would be to be in this foreign land and to be completely and suddenly your country wasn't there anymore, basically. Um, he's very obsessed with atomic war. It shows up in the Martian Chronicles as well. And in fact, you can link the Martian Chronicles to a couple of his other major works, including um, uh, Fahrenheit 451. Uh, the yeah, events- um, it doesn't, like, apparently the continuity doesn't really line up, but there's definite themes there, right. especially in Usher 2. Yeah, Usher 2 is definitely, uh, like, you could very loosely... Uh, say that the events of Fahrenheit 451 are taking place on Earth uh, leading up to Usher 2. Because the, Fahrenheit 451 also ends with a nuclear war, and it ends with, and it's about, Yeah, you know, but people. doesn't it have it that there were two wars before uh, the story takes place? Um, I can't quite remember the historical continuity of Fahrenheit 451. They, it, the important uh, thing... Wikipedia said it doesn't line up anyway. Oh, I okay. I haven't actually read that one. Yeah, I, I read it quite a long time ago. It's actually been a while since I've read it. Uh, the, in the book Fahrenheit 451, it's 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 um it kind of implies that this you know decadent society is meeting its end because of an atomic war, and that's what that led to them having a war because they couldn't you know learn from the past anymore and they couldn't understand what was going on anymore, uh you know because they were all you know distracted by whatever was on t- TV that at that moment. Um and in addition uh there's uh the uh, the Illustrated Man. Some of the stories in the Illustrated Man, which is another collection of short stories, much more loosely linked together. They're not they're they don't have as much of a structure as the Martian Chronicles. Um, but some of the stories again are Mars stories, and in the at the same time, the hero of the Illustrated Man uh, shows up again in um, something wicked this way comes, Mister Dark. And anyway, so there's there's a whole you could you can sort of argue that in a very loose continuity, all of all of Ray Bradbury's stories kind of blur into one big continuity, but yeah, it's not a very I mean, tight continuity. I imagine it's similar to how Vonnegut's stories work, where they don't really line up, but there's a lot of things right. that pass between them. Yeah, well, and like like Vonnegut has um, uh, Kilgore Trout, and because it's explicitly a meta storyline, you can you can kind of uh, yeah, but stuff like Trail Famidor, like yeah, that yeah, comes Trump up Famidor. in a lot of books, and it's always mutually exclusive, as right. we discussed. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's um, it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, many many authors do this. They just they get they get obsessed with a certain image or idea, and they kind of go yeah. back to it over and over I mean, again. Lo- Lovecraft too. Like he he wasn't trying to create a coherent mythos. He just mm-hmm. had certain uh, images he liked to come back to again and again. Right, exactly. And then Darleth, August Darleth, went in and mm-hmm. made a mythos out of it, sort of um, right, right, posthumously. But, yeah, but but of course Bradbury did like he he was very. It's it's credited to a nameless uh, Doubleday publisher. I'm not really sure who suggested it, but I mean you got to think Bradbury had some ideas along those lines as he was writing the stories. Like they're very clearly uh, points of continuity, and also as I said, apparently he was a <laughs> He, he, he was a big sci- uh, short story writer. He was very, um, you know, he's more of a sh- short story writer than a novelist in some ways, Bradbury, um, because he, he, so many of his works are collections of short stories. Um, Fahrenheit 451 is probably the only full-on novel that he's really, well, I guess something wicked this way comes as well. Um, but those are the two that, that are generally, you know, he's really well associated with his novels. Everything else is short stories. And of course, a lot, he was one of those writers whose work was frequently adapted into episodes of 
uh, I don't know if he ever had one directly adapted into an episode of the Twilight Zone, but he was definitely inspiration to the Twilight Zone. Um, he directed, uh, or Tales from the Crypt, swiped from his work a lot. That ha- They tended to uh, take a lot of sci- uh, short story writers and uh, often you know, change some elements and names so they wouldn't get sued, <laughs> but drop them into, um, into episodes of Tales from the Crypt, which, uh, Bradbury apparently, like, actively gave him, gave them his blessing to adapt into Tales from the Crypt. But as you can see, he liked the Macrober, Macrober, uh, he was one of the godfathers of the Macrober twist, Macrob, Macrober twist. Macabre. Uh, macabre twist. I'm very bad with that word. I don't know. <laughs> it haunts me. Um, Anyway, it's it's uh, a it, the macabre uh, twist uh, that became associated with fifties uh, sci-fi and horror stories uh, is very much Bradbury is one of the main reasons why so we like, do that. Sort of like um, basically every Twilight Zone episode, yeah. twist at the end. Yeah, Twilight Zone was one hundred percent. The Twilight Zone was inspired by Ray Bradbury's work. Okay. Um, I sing the body electric was adapted into the Twilight Zone, a uh, Twilight Zone ep- episode. Um, that's a, uh, that's a Ray Bradbury story. And they did that, they, you know, they adapted a lot of science fiction writers of the time. Uh, they, they did, um, the guy who wrote I Am Legend, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, Matheson. Yeah, Richard Matheson wrote, like, he just flat out wrote a bunch of episodes. Uh, but they adapted, he adapted them from his own stories, so, um, <clears throat> So the, yeah, you know that that was kind. Of, he was part of that stew that the the sort of the first twenty years after World War II that we started to associate with, uh, you know, uh, anthologies and and uh, punchy short stories. Uh, as I say, especially horror stories. Uh, Bradbury's a huge uh, huge influence on Stephen King, by the way. Stephen King has actually written a couple of stories where he flat out said, "This is me attempting to write a Ray Bradbury story." Uh, Neil Gaiman as well. He's he literally wrote a huge uh, uh, poem for Ray Bradbury after he died. The huge influence on tons and tons of writers, um, and uh, yeah, he was a short story writer. He was published in the New Yorker and and uh, as well as sort of the pulp. So he kind of he could cross over with uh, with ease between the various um, worlds of publishing, which was uh, a talent that a lot of people were jealous of at the time. Um, and would be now too. Yeah, well, of course they don't. <laughs> you don't. You can't write short stories like that anymore. You can't get published oh, yeah. that way anymore. You can't bang out, you know, three cents a word and and uh, crank out short yeah. stories. Unfortunately, but most uh, he, short story writers I see are already famous as novelists, and they sometimes put out additional stuff. Right. Yeah, it's it's. You uh, see some anthologies and stuff, but um, most of the stuff that gets any publicity is like a Neil Gaiman wrote a short story on his website or. Something right. like that. Well, I mean, you get you, you've you've done something. There's been some uh, some writers who have actually some editors who've actually done kind of a cool thing. A lot of short story anthologies are actually put together around one or two famous writers with their short stories, with the idea that that that'll promote the other lesser known writers in the book. Uh, I've seen a few like that, like the Legends anthology from a while back, and um, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, uh, Michael Chabon when he edited a. Uh, special McSweeney's uh, edition. Uh, he brought in a lot of famous writers, but he also had some lesser-known writers that uh, produced some really cool stories. So that's you know, but yeah, there's not as not. It's it's a real shame that there isn't a good market for short stories. Well, there is, but it's like creepy pastas and things like that. It's oh yeah, yeah. It, it's completely changed. But I mean, even the creepy pastas owe a debt to Ray Bradbury. You know, you can't uh, you can't get away from him as a refer- as a as a, something that uh, inspired that whole thing. Um, of course, 
you know, he didn't invent the short story, but but uh, he's definitely uh, he he's definitely if O. Henry was the turn of the century king of the short story, uh, Ray Bradbury is one of the kings of the mid twentieth century. Um, the other thing that dominated the mid twentieth century was uh, advertisements. So uh, it's time for us to uh, listen to some advertisements. We'll be right back here on What Mad Universe. Hey, Lassie, what are you doing here? Timmy's in a well. Sequelcast 2 and Friends is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time, like Harry Potter, Hellraiser, and The Hobbit. And sometimes the hosts talk about video games and TV as well. And now it's part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Oh, Lassie, we don't need to rescue Timmy. He likes the well well enough, I guess. Darth Vader is Luke's father. Lassie, I told you to lay off the spoilers. Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO, Editor-in-Chief, over there at ShackNews.com. Give a listen to the ShackCast, the official Shack News podcast of Shack News, uh, over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Anyway, The Martian Chronicles uh, is uh, a story, in, in terms of its you know, long-form plot, uh, first it portrays uh, Earthmen coming to Mars and encountering the Martian civilization there. Well, uh, first, it, the first story is from the Martians' point of view. It's it's a Martian couple. Mm-hmm. One of them has psychic visions of astronauts about to land, and mm-hmm. she falls in love with them, and all, all this stuff in her visions. And her husband gets really jealous, and right. it, it ends with the husband actually going over and shooting the ast- the astronauts dead, right, and covering up the evidence that they were there um, <clears throat> because he was jealous, which is interesting yeah it's it, it, it's sort of a reversal of the usual um uh john carter deja thoris relationship i guess yes and and it should be noted ray bradbury was a huge fan of john carter uh that yeah, that yeah. had um, an influence on his work um barsoom is is very clear um i mean in terms of the the setting the the basic idea of what his mars was the, the mm-hmm. civilization there is very much obviously inspired by burroughs um on the uh, the Wikipedia, it talks to a lot about um, Burroughs. Uh, um, sorry, um, Bradbury saying Burroughs is the most influential writer of all time, which um, <laughs> yeah. I would disagree with. I like Burroughs, but yeah, um, that's a little much. <laughs> yeah. But um, he also said uh, the uh, the Martian Chronicles wouldn't exist without Burroughs, and that he was uh, right. like I believe he, he said he was drawn in by um, Hal Foster's adaptation of Tarzan. In the comic mm. strips, right? Um, Hal Foster from um, uh, Prince Valiant, really right. detailed drafts, very well drawn, drafted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah he started as uh, on the Tarzan strip, and then he got Prince Valiant, yeah. I believe. Um, and yeah, yeah, no, that's that's definitely what's interesting about Bradbury, because again, he's he's a he's critically acclaimed, but he loved sort of um the more pop cultural stuff. Um, he was a huge friend of Forrest J. Ackerman and. Uh, Ray Harryhausen, they were all good buddies for a long, for ages. Bradbury said he was going to write a story, uh, write a movie script, and that uh, Harryhausen would uh, adapt it when they do stop motion and stuff. And uh, it, yeah, nev- uh, it never really. A lot of these stories, sorry, a lot of these stories uh, felt like um, it's set in uh, on Barsoom, but the stories themselves are more like I don't know Steinbeck or something. <laughs> yeah, it's um, well, yeah, it's very elegaic. It's not about they're not action adventure stories. They're they're more yeah, sort of. Yeah, but uh, I mean, in in terms of like 
you could imagine like Barsoom adventures are happening to other people right. know, somewhere else. Um, and that, uh, but these stories are focused on more um, somber. Um, uh, yeah, they're more atmospheric yeah. and they're more mood pieces. Um, he was. It is interesting, as you say. The first story um, is 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 the only really clear look we get at the Martians. Uh, well, there's a few others, but um, but I mean that's the one where you really feel like you're on Mars and it's from their point of view. And in yeah. every other story, they're glimpsed, right? You don't. In, in in particular, what you tend to see from that point on, once humans start to really come and and meet the Martians, uh, the Martians are telepathic, and one of the major things that seems to happen is that they they basically shift to look like. Uh, something that humans would recognize almost inadvertently. It's not a hundred percent their own decision. Like uh, in the, one of the big stories, the Martian uh, it's this uh, couple who sees their dead child. And uh, the Martian is apparently doing this somewhat on purpose because he, he's lonely and he wants company, but, but he also um, can't help it when people like he turns right instinctively into people's lost, you know, somebody that they've lost. And right. Um, it ends up a whole crowd fighting over, mm-hmm. and he keeps shifting into these different forms based on who was talking, and that kills him. There's another uh, Ray Bradbury story. Again, I'm not sure of the timeline. I don't know if he kept going back to this sort of setting or if they were all written in this sort of 10-year period from 46 to early 50s. Uh, but there's another story he did write about um, uh, uh, a priest uh, who, you know, they hear, and I believe this one was actually set on earth, but they talk about, there's a Martian loose somewhere. Um, and, uh, the priest is sort of closing up the, the church at the end of the day. And, and, uh, he walks up and he sees literally Jesus, uh, standing over the, uh, the altar and, uh, like bleeding into the holy water. And, um, he, you know, he's just, it's this awe transpired in, in experience. And the, and the Jesus is literally saying, look, I'm a Martian, but you're making me into this form. <laughs> like literally, <laughs> no, I'm not Jesus. Please. I just trying to hide. He's on the run. I can't remember the circumstances why they were hunting the Martian. Uh, and, uh, but it's the same thing. He gets, he gets turned by the, by, uh, the, um, uh, perception of the people looking at him and uh the and the 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 priest actually gets him to promise to come back once every year because it's it's obviously a religious experience for him it's it's uh, transformative for him um but yeah uh, there was one story that uh, i really liked though it kind of doesn't fit in with the rest of it in some ways uh at least um like you you could fit it in but it, it sort of theme seems a little thematically out of place in some ways but where um uh, a second or third expedition arrives on Mars, and um, nobody, none of the Martians are remotely impressed at these people who say they're humans and they're they come from another planet, and the uh, the Martians just sort of keep uh, shuffling to you know like grumbling that they're here and shuffling yeah. them to to somewhere else, and then right. uh, they're finally shuffled into a room with a bunch of other people, and um, they discover that. A common thing on Mars at this point is that people suffer under the delusion that they're from another planet, usually Earth. And uh, because they're telepathic, they can change their bodies and create uh, objects around them. Um, So um, these uh, Martian psychiatrists think that this astronaut has created the spaceship. He is a Martian who created the spaceship he landed on. And all of his crew members are figments of his imagination that he made real. Right. And it ends with um, 
with uh, the Martian psychiatrist shooting all of them. Um, and uh, then when the um, um, spaceship and stuff lingers, the psychiatrist uh, assumes that he's been infected by the delusions and ends up shooting himself. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... I, I really liked, uh, just as a short, you know, standalone thing, I, I really liked it, though it kind of... Right. Doesn't fit with the personality of the Martians and other stories. Yeah, I mean they they do tend to. Ch it's funny the first times, two times we see the Martians, and again that's the f the most uh, you know we we see of them, and they've after that they start to recede because then the third expedition, which was published under the name Mars is Heaven, uh, is f straight up a horror story where they land on Mars and they find it to be this uh, this old timey. Uh, uh, you know, like an old old town of their youth, an old uh, middle American town, uh, very rose tinged nostalgia, and um, they, you know, they all and they're all their dead relatives are there, and they all sort of let their guard down, and then as they, you know, curl up into bed, all happy and believing, wow, Mars must be this wonderful place where everyone, uh, you know, everyone goes when they die, and it's again Mars is heaven, and then of course they, the you know, the captain. <laughs> the captain Ray Bradbury uh, protagonists are usually not very smart, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the captain only now starts to think, "Wait, what if this is a trap?" And then he get they all die. Um, but and it's well to be fair, the captain was suspicious through most of it, but. right? But he then he gets completely overwhelmed by meeting his dead uh, dad. No, brother. his brother. That's brother. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, and at this point, the Martians like that's the thing. It's implied at this point the Martians are dying already so they know uh that the humans did it and this is them getting their revenge on the humans when they land um and the the hum it's actually chicken pox uh wipes out yeah, martians though that story uh ends with a um interesting imagery with uh the martians like the humans are dead but the mar the town is still sort of there right sort of blinking on and off and the martians are they you know the relatives are all gathered for the funeral of these men who the Mar yeah. who they killed and right. uh, they sort of blink into Martian form occasionally. Right. It's sort and, of yes. it, it would work really well as a horror movie actually. Yeah. And I mean that yeah, that makes it more horrific and it, but it does it is actually consistent the implication that the telepathy lives on because again yeah, like yeah. the second expedition guy the, the psychiatrist was saying oh wow I'm still infected even though they're dead I'm still thinking and then of course in the Martian story um the kid is uh uh, is uh, um, you know he stays in all these different forms after he dies the Martian child or the Martian who is pretending to be a child and um, yeah and there's also uh, a running we don't get much about Martian civilization but they seem to have a thing about masks they like to wear right. masks to show their their true face or to hide their true emotions right depending. Well, it does um, make a certain amount of sense. It would be something you could kind of fixate on to know who they were if they're constantly shape shifting with <laughs> due to telepathy, yeah, that makes right? Sense. Yeah, and, and that was that. apparently inspired by uh, Bradbury. Uh, he, one of the things that inspired him was he'd seen an exhibition of um, of uh, ancient Egyptian, um, uh, like a sarcophagus and, and relics and so forth. And that was one of the big, uh, you know, he he'd envisioned the Martians being essentially living, you know, Tutankhamun sarcophagi. Uh, that was yeah, that, that makes sense. That was something, and and the masks were part of that as well. Um, um, yeah, you mentioned they they get killed by chickenpox, and mm -hmm. it's probably a direct reference to War of the Worlds, yes. where the Martians yeah. die of the common cold. Mm -hmm. Though that wasn't actually the first time that happened in fiction. Right. Um, there's um, 
uh, a story by uh, Hugh McCall called Mr. Stranger's Sealed Packet. Mm -hmm. Actually, it was 1889, so a little bit before War of the Worlds, about 10 years before, a little less than 10 years. Um, Sort of a quaint little story about a guy who goes to Mars and falls in love with a Martian and... um, but he brings her back to Earth at the end, and she almost immediately succumbs to all the diseases on Earth mm. and uh, dies. And it has a very melancholy ending right? where he accidentally lets his spaceship drift off into space, and he's yeah. sort of just stuck on Earth. And um, Yeah. Um, Sorry, was that, that was get, after War of the Worlds or before War of the before, Worlds? Before. About oh. ten years before. A little okay. less than ten years. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, obviously very different from War of the Worlds, but... Probably um, ideas that uh, were in the public consciousness because, you know, it was just coming up. It was the late Victorian era and the whole, I mean, obviously um, uh, Native Americans or from earlier centuries died right. through, uh, um, in a lot of cases, through um, uh, disease. But also uh, all the exploration of Africa at the time by Europeans going in and screwing up Africa. Right. A lot of them had malaria. You know, right. suffered through malaria, either died from it or lived through it. <laughs> yeah, but but in this case, I, I I really it's probably direct reference to uh, War of the Worlds. But I'm just saying, there's yeah, that no no no, it's sort of in the consciousness at the time. Well, it's both. It is War of the Worlds, but it's also uh, by the time you get to that point in the story, the Martians are you know they're their own civilization. As as you point out, we see them the first few times, and they have their own follies and their own. You know, they're 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 not some idyllic civilization, not some utopia. Uh, you know, the 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 first story is is a very sort of uh, you know, it, it's almost sort of setting the stages. You know, you know, oh, that was the the original sin that you know that the Martians brought down on themselves because the humans did come in peace, as far as we can tell. The very first expedition, uh, the humans seem to be soon to have come with all the best intentions, uh, unlike later expeditions. Um, and in fact, as the expeditions go on, they get arguably less and less valid. <laughs> um, yeah, they they become more more sinful and and flawed. Uh, and the Martians. So, but yeah, he definitely went, by the time you get to uh, and the moon be still as bright, which is about the fourth expedition, uh, where the Martians are all dead at this point, or mostly dead. Uh, they've all been wiped out by chickenpox, and um, it's definitely paralleling the native americans at that point like that's a hundred percent yeah because from that point on mars mars becomes like you know the wild west and outer space uh with colonists and and settlers yeah i think though Um, there's really interesting imagery because it's most of these stories are set in the early 2000s but it's obvious they're it's obvious when they were written it's a very 1950s sort of setting and a lot of these martian towns that humans set up have like jukeboxes and stuff and it's it's interesting imagining like a Right, know, a, a malt shop with a with the jukebox, but outside there's two moons. You know, it's, right. it's sort of really interesting. Yeah, the hot dog stand on Mars is yeah. a big, is part of the one of the big stories, and 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 uh, I mean, part of the big theme of the story is very clear. It's it, it's a very anti-colonial story, um, because it's very much sort of about the hubris of of uh, humans coming into to like literally the moon be still as bright is very much explicitly about that. Like the humans are going to show up and, and, you know, put up billboards and, and litter and, and trash and disrespect this, you know, ancient and, culture and rename everything. Cause they right. don't know the name, the true names of these places and mountains. And they'll just name them things like Lincoln and, you know, 
yeah, Jefferson or whatever. Yeah, that's yeah. that is something in the again the story. Um, Dark they were in Golden Eyed. Uh, that really plays up that side of the story because in that story, what happens is that um, uh, a bunch of it's it's set during the Atomic War. So later there is an Atomic War and and the Martians react in different ways. Uh, but on uh, Earth, on the, Earth, the Atomic War is on Earth, right? And and um, the um, uh, Apparently, what happens is that a bunch of uh, settlers come to Mars uh, during the war, escaping the war. Which so that doesn't quite jive up with the events of the Martian Chronicles, but it's very similar to the final story, the Million Year Picnic, which is you know humans coming to Mars and they're going to settle and start a new civilization and start fresh. Uh, that's literally what happens in Dark They Are and Golden Eyes because they they uh, they come and and they start talking about yeah we're going to. You know, oh, they're going to come in. They're going to rename everything Jefferson County and Washington Land and everything. Um, and uh, as they live there, they start to slowly find themselves thinking Martian thoughts. And you know, they they decide they'd rather live in the Martian villas than the the the, the place they built. Their cow starts growing an extra horn, and their their plants start coming up Martian instead of you know the way they were, uh, like Earth things. And the humans start turning into Martians, and they literally start calling themselves by Martian names. And uh, the same story ends with, new, like, after the war is over, more human settlers come and say, oh, look, there's still Martians living on Mars. And again, they start making plans to rename everything, but it's implied that Mars will basically eat you and absorb you into itself, and you'll become, you know, you'll become part of Mars. And that's, you know, like, that's that's inconsistent with the themes of the whole novel, basically, uh, even though yeah. the, the events slightly don't sync up with it. Um, if you yeah, wanted, well, the, the, the novel and... The like you said, the last story where they're planning on the family is planning on establishing themselves on Mars. Mm -hmm. The father keeps saying, we're going to show you Martians. There are Martians. And it ends with them going to the canal and the dad pointing at the reflections. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that, yeah. Yeah. So dark there were in golden eyes is almost an alternate take on that same story in some ways. Um, and I, 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 it's actually funny to me uh, now that may have actually come, later again i'm not totally clear if these were all written at the time that the martian chronicles was made but i almost feel like you know that could have been the ending it could have been an alternate version of the same final story but it's it's he, bradbury's very disdainful of human civilization in this book um even as he sort of you know he's comparing it to the wild west settlers but he doesn't look at them in a romantic way at all he he sees them as a bunch of clods who come in and make a mess as i say they build a hot dog stand. the fourth expedition is made up almost entirely of just jackasses who come in and trash the place except this one guy spencer who um um sorry spender who uh who actually says i want to acknowledge uh mars the way it is and respect the martian culture and i'm going to move ends up, up shooting some of them right and he too says i'm going to be a i'm going to be a martian i'm going to i'm going to go up and uh, and live in the hills and be a martian so you can see it's it's this kind of tension between uh, wanting to keep the old world, which is flawed and sinful in, Mar in Bradbury's uh, conception, or, you know, starting something new on Mars, like genuinely new. Um, or old, if you like, because it can be seen as, well, you revert back to the Martian way of doing things. But the Martians, as we said, weren't were flawed as well. So there's almost a hint that maybe you could blend the two and you'd have something actually positive. Uh, it, it has a hopeful ending in that sense, but you know, as I say, uh, there's an atomic war, and all the the settlers basically pack up and and head back to Earth at that point. Um, Mars is kind of a symbol of like human aspiration, 
in uh, in this book, I would say, and like the settlers are, you know, they're all in the one story, um, the off season, the the guy who opens the hot dog stand, he's he's uh, essentially granted the rights to Mars by the Martians because they know the uh, the atomic war is coming, and they're leaving somewhere. I, it's not clear where, but somehow they're heading off. Um, maybe they're all going to kill themselves, but maybe they have some. Escape. Maybe they they aren't just dying. Yeah, and they know they're dying. Yeah. Um, well, I, the I thing is, that, but these are the, the ones. Mar- there's these... a lot of Martians in that story, and I took a lot of them as like illusions cast from telepathy. But yeah, well, they did say that um, all the Martians on Mars gathered because it was a portentous moment, and and um, I mean these are the ones who survived. The, they explicitly say these are the ones who survived the chicken box. so they could have survived. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's you know you want to think that they didn't all die out, obviously, and that they survived somehow. And I mean, if you remember the Futurama episode. Uh, with the Martians, um, and they all leave at the end, basically. <laughs> uh, that was very clearly inspired by the Martian Chronicles. Um, uh, again, where they kind of, they the humans took over Marsh, Mars, and the, the Native Martians all left. But yeah, then it they're, to... they're explicitly based on Native Americans. Right, right. Including, like, having feather headdresses coming out of their actual heads. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is a little unfortunate. And, and it's interesting. And then uh, there's also the story in this one, um, Way Up the Middle of the Air, which is about basically all the black people, which the story unfortunately features the N-word a lot, um, but in the context of obviously a bunch of racist white men being angry that all the black people are leaving and going to Mars to get away from them. Um, and uh, there's actually a follow-up story uh, where um, the I mentioned the other foot, uh, which is where uh, the black people have a colony on Mars, and um, uh, they f- they hear about the nuclear war on Mars, and uh, one of the main guys in the town basically says, "Well, this is great. The white people are going to come here. They're going to be, you know, crawling at our feet because they're going to get away from uh, from the nuclear war, and now we can be in charge." And there's a whole discussion over whether it's like, "Well, wait, we'll just be reproducing the same situation." but in reverse and you know we're we're better than that basically and it's it's uh it's interesting in that story this is all you know by modern standards it's maybe you know not the most enlightened thing but this was written in the 50s you know Mark, uh, yeah yeah he's it's it's very forward thinking for the time yeah he was he was clearly you know writing sympathetically about uh african americans at the time and and trying to be anti-racist uh unfortunately in later years bradbury actually did become pretty racist um he started he became the kind of guy who rails against political correctness and well that that was already happening in this book a little bit um right in the usher story uh it blames a lot of the censorship on not wanting to offend different demographic like minorities right and yeah i it, it felt a little like a a Dave Rubin episode or something you know <laughs> um saying they're burning books because they're criticizing this you know, racist stereotype in a book or whatever, um, right. which is not how that works. I mean, to I'll, I'll give Bradbury, you know, credit to say that he was, he was like, he's clearly even he's both sides in it, but he's saying like, you know, he's, he's, what he's criticizing is full on just don't destroy books. Don't, uh, you know, don't, don't destroy books at all. Um, yeah. And, and, and but for whatever I, I, reason, I, I whether you're sensitive because you hear that argument a lot nowadays that criticism is censorship and yeah, I don't think it is. Yeah. He's not, he's, he's definitely, um, you know, he, he's of the idea and, and the story Escher too is a defense of specifically the horror, horror and the fantastical and the imagination. 
um, which is, yeah. you know... And, and, but it, I, it just, that little bit rubbed me wrong. Oh, 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 well, believe me, that was part of Bradbury's, like, mindset, and it, more and more going forward. Uh, and even, this is the thing about Fahrenheit, so you were talking about Fahrenheit 451 earlier, and um, this is the thing, and people have always seen it as an anti-censorship work. And ironically, later in the 90s and 2000s, Brad, they were coming to Bradbury and saying, well, you know, with Bush in office, don't you think that you know, this is more relevant than ever. And he'd be like, no, Bush is great. I love Bush. Clinton was a jerk and I'm glad Bush is in charge. And uh, it's not about censorship. It's about uh, how people don't read anymore and people don't listen to the facts and don't want to listen to, to, you know, any controversial points of view and how nobody, everyone's just an idiot addicted to television. And yeah, I remember that. And the the irony is that he was like, he almost seemed to be defending, like he almost seemed angry that people said it's against censorship. Like he almost seemed to be saying censorship is okay. It's just, he doesn't like it when people don't have the mental capacity not to read. It's, it's really weird. And I, I I, I mean, that era was, you know, an era where people were like burning Harry Potter books on, right. on the right, yeah, uh, or the whole Dixie Chicks thing, right? Um, like there were there were mass burnings of media, um, and that's I think you know, yeah, scarier than people like I said <laughs> criticizing a book for being problematic, right? And I mean I'm I'm not I mean there was there was a lot of much I I in my mind trumped up uh, criticism of. Um, uh, like there were there were, there was a period I remember in the '90s where people were saying, "Oh, they're taking uh, you know uh, uh, Tom Sawyer off the shelves because it has the N word in it," and uh, you know, like like books schools won't let certain books be published anymore, and and or let books be taught or or let them be in their libraries anymore, and it was seen as you know leftists being crazy and restrictive, and you know there may have been actually a little bit of that, but we're talking specifically about a school curriculum. We're not talking about you know banning all literature. It's what's appropriate for kids and what's appropriate to be taught in the classroom. And I think that as usual, we had the yeah, right and gearing I mean, up with, and say, criticizing um, about uh, with say Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. I mean, there's a lot of good lessons in those books, but you know you have to you know you have to account for a lot of the teachers themselves just sort of probably itching to say the n-word or something you know um this was definitely there was definitely or it was attributed to you know leftists and anti-racist movements and oh political correctness run amok but don't you understand you fools it's an anti-racist book and blah 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 like i remember the first wave of that happened in the early to mid 90s yeah and there was a big well that that was when the phrase political correctness got popular right and and it is you know, I I think the later Bradbury is kind of twisting what the younger Bradbury was trying to say with that book uh, into his like. I think he he turned it into whatever the current politics of the time I, I were. I think uh, just going by the movie, there is a little bit of that in it. Um, with them like saying they started off by banning um, uh, Robinson Crusoe because the blacks didn't like uh, the Friday character. Yeah. And that is, and that is very much That's, in the book. Right again, it's oh, you know, oh, I believe so, so yeah. sensitive. But now it's worth noting. I, I actually do believe Bradbury when he said that book was, um, like he, he, I think he intended it more about a criticism of intellectual uh, myopia and not being able to, you know, people don't read anymore because Fahrenheit four five one is like, oh, television, it's so evil, blah blah blah, it's eating everyone's brains and so on. Um, I. I think if you don't want it to be interpreted as an anti-censorship work, 
don't have the characters literally burning books to get rid of bad yeah. ideas. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's it's imagery because the original the Nazi book burnings were originally books uh, by Jewish authors and on often on trans issues. From right. The, um, institute they had there about gay and and trans uh, gender studies. Uh, right. Though it would have been called transsexual at the time. You know, because uh, Weimar Germany was very, very progressive, more so than most of Europe right. at the time, and um, the Nazis were in many ways a backlash to that. Um, yeah. So just like those are those images of book burning, you see, those are targeted at, at books on trans literature and things, early yeah. science research on on trans issues. So right. Well, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, it's uh, it's you do, when you hear someone's burning books, you immediately think you know, more right-leaning censorship, 100%. And Bradbury was a little, I think, like I say, he was a little more concerned with, uh, oh, nobody reads anymore. But then that doesn't jibe with the fact that it's active censorship going on in this world. And I think he only put that in and because he liked, the joke is of Fahrenheit 451 is that the, quote, firemen uh, are the ones who go around burning books. Uh, and he liked that imagery, like instead of, fighting fires they set fires because all the houses Though, are, are I, I believe early firemen actually did often set arson so they could well uh, bully people because they were for profit so they but, would uh yeah yeah it was like a protection racket but this um, is their job like this yeah, is literally what they're supposed to be doing and um and again because he I makes know, it I into a government i'm sorry i just thought that was fun yeah it, it, he makes it into an you know a government thing and and that muddies his message i've never been a huge fan of fahrenheit 451 and honestly i have a bit of a though i did like how the movie didn't have opening credits and it yeah. just had a person announcing the the stars of the movie right that it, was fun yeah which was which was of course what happens in the book everyone's goes back to learning uh literature basically to, to learning uh, yeah, oral, but, oral literature yeah but i mean uh like it starts out instead of having titles on the screen it just yeah, has yeah. an announcer saying the Right, saying the names. I thought that was a clever, yeah, yeah. sort of um, meta thing on it. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's it's a it's a cool uh, it's a cool cool uh, gimmick. I mean, it's it's a it's a decent movie. It's not that bad, despite what Bradbury thought. But yeah, no, I I I've had kind of a love hate relationship with Bradbury. Um, like because again, he's some, such a wonderfully evocative writer sometimes. Uh, but he's up his own butt so <laughs> to a huge <laughs> degree, especially as it goes on and on and. Like something wicked this way comes as a fun story uh, that does some amazing stuff, uh, but it's also a story where characters will give a, a nice speech, and then everyone will stand around talking about what a nice speech that character just gave. And it's essentially oh, Bradbury patting yeah. himself on the back for for writing something really nicely. Like, and then everybody clapped. Everybody on the subway clapped. You know, Tumblr posts or whatever. Um, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not that bad, but it is definitely no, like, no. But it's he's he's. He's like, he wants you to know he just wrote some really beautiful prose. Because he obviously, and this is the thing, Martian Chronicles is very early in his career and doesn't have that tendency as much. Uh, and as I say, he becomes very wonderfully atmospheric and evocative, but he gets he gets a little too, uh, too yeah, full of Yeah, there's one story that, that I, uh, towards the end of this, that actually takes place on Earth uh, after, after the war, uh, with an automated house that's still carrying on uh, long after the owners are dead, yeah, and it's still doing all the daily rituals. It makes breakfast and then it cleans up the breakfast because nobody's right. eaten it. Um, yeah. And it, it uh, describes it as um, like uh, priests in a temple where the gods have long left, but the priests are still performing their rituals. 
right. It's, it's really sad because these are like non-sentient machines, but it's, he still makes you feel for them. In yeah, a way. yeah, he's one of the early, uh, you know, depictors of that kind of imagery, which, uh, and that was adapted into um, not a Tales from the Crypt, but one of the '50s era, um, like this EC Comics publishers, as one of their science fiction books. Okay, uh, adapted that into a science fiction story, into a into a comic book story. Uh, which was very effective, I think. Uh, I think Wally Wood drew it, actually. Um, okay. Anyway, so yeah, there's a, a, a number of Bradbury stories were turned into uh, into uh, into that era EC Comics uh, adaptations. He wrote this the story that uh, Beast from a, a Hundred Thousand Fathoms is from, right? Uh, yes, uh, it was a story called The Lighthouse, I believe, or the Fo- yeah, yeah, either which, the Lighthouse um, or the Fo- indirectly Fo- inspired Godzilla. So that's interesting, right? And uh, yeah, like I say, again, this is him and Harryhausen working together. Uh, I also like to point out that he wrote a story called uh, The Rocket Man, which is probably the basis for the Elton John song. Um, okay, <laughs> Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. Uh, you mean but, the William Shatner song? Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, the William Shatner song. Yeah. I, I would say I, I recommended uh, this collection. I mean, it's a famous work, so yeah. Um, uh, it's got it's got issues as we discussed, but uh, uh, I think there's more to like there than there is to dislike. Yeah, I and um, I, I rail against the House of Usher story a bit for for that political correctness crack but uh, it was also a good story yeah yeah and it got referenced in league of extraordinary gentlemen in the very last issue which is interesting oh, okay. oh all right which had a similar theme about um right uh the fantastical uh taking over you know like fiction has become very mundane and the yeah. story is about the fantastical re-emerging and so right. uh talks about there's suddenly the a house from a Poe story is on mars and right people are confused by it so yeah anyway yeah. Yeah, it's it's yeah clearly a reference to that, and he and yeah, it's it's uh it's it's almost the League of Extraordinary Edgar Allan Poe stories that story. Which yeah, I really yeah. Like. <laughs> with the uh, with the ape from the murders uh, mm-hmm. on the, the Rue Morgue. Morgue and yeah, Ped- yeah. Pendle- Pendle- and, and yeah, I, I read twist. that story before I read the rest of the Martian. I I read a uh, a lot of people have encountered these separately, of course, from the Martian Chronicles, and I did read that story before I read the, the full Martian Chronicles. Um, and yeah, that I've always I've always loved that story. And I, it's and funny it's, I remember it's got stuff. There there are robots and other stories, but this one has the very like uh, the LMDs from Marvel Comics, you know, very yep. um, uh, or like um, I don't know the people uh, in the Michelin Possible Mission Impossible movies where they're always reveal yeah. they're actually somebody else with a mask it's funny so it's a lot of robots and it turns out that they're these are you know keep yeah. switching around whether they're real or robots right i remember that twist being a lot more surprising i i feel like i missed the fact that the robot murders the guy early on um and replaces him with someone else um like right at the beginning because the twist is that they bring all these people into the all these all the sensors into the house of usher and to witness what's going on, to watch their robot double, doubles be murdered, and then it turns out that the real people were murdered, and they've been replaced with robot doubles who are going to go out and, you know, and undo all their work basically in the real in the real world. Um, and I, I remember that being a mind blowing twist, but it's pretty obvious <laughs> when you yeah. reread it here what it's going to happen. Uh, well, not entirely. I mean, I didn't see the 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 idea that the um, 
I don't know. I didn't see it all coming, but yeah, uh, fair enough. Yeah, it's not entirely mind blowing. It might be a, a when you wrote it, read it sort of thing. Yeah, the, the second you read it, it's this is the second time around, I guess. But yeah, it's uh, you know, it's got a good. Uh, he did he did do the occasional. He's not the kind of writer who goes what a twist, but he did do that once in a while. Bradbury, he could really do some uh, some good work with that. I did want to say there is a uh, TV minis- miniseries that I didn't get around to watching. Right. Apparently Bradbury hated it, but he seemed to hate a lot of things. So. Well, I've heard generally um, it was not very successful. Yeah, apparently it's it's very bland. I think it misses mm-hmm. kind of. I mean, this is as I say, this is very atmospheric and evocative, and you'd have to be you know nice, good production values to really bring it to life. I think. Yeah. And, and I, it might, on a it might also TV be budget, uh, the Lovecraft I'd, issue where a lot of his stories are hard to adapt because hmm. they're mostly just atmosphere, and it's hard right. to hard to transfer into other mediums yeah well but also it was a 70s tv budget so i don't oh, expect yeah. that to be very uh, impressive anyway so uh but yeah we'll watch it someday well the twin moons are sinking in the sky and it's time for us to say farewell we are as always adam prosser and philip rice the first men on mars and your humble hosts we thank once again alex ross our producer engineer and proprietor of the only hot dog stand for a thousand miles and Jack Fierick, who makes bone music in the Dead Cities for writing our theme song. Just a reminder that we both have a Patreon if you want to keep the rockets flying here at What Mad Universe. And if you subscribe to either, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's. Or go to Never Sleeps Network slash series slash what dash mad dash universe for the links. You can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Adam Prosser or Prankster36 for me or Spear Hafok with an F underscore for Philip. Until next time, keep your sights on the green and burning star called Earth, and we'll see you on the other side of the Million Year Picnic.